Well, today we're going to continue with uh, the series that one of our elders, Ken Jenkins, started last week. Uh, and this series is called uh, This One Thing. And what we're essentially doing, uh, myself and a few of our elders, what we're doing is taking uh, kind of one thing that we want to give to you and unpacking it on a Sunday morning. And so uh, that's what's happening for the month of July. I have a brand new uh, series that we're really excited about that starts in August with our relaunch on the second. But for this month, uh, each Sunday is it's kind of its own present we're unwrapping together, and it's this one thing. My this one thing, my one thing I want to give you is what I'm calling shopping cart theology. Shopping cart theology. And uh, in order to get there, I have to actually start with a whole other idea, and that's uh, the number 1965. 1965 means different things to different people. For some of us, we are thinking about the Vietnam War beginning or MLK leading the march in Selma and Montgomery. Some of us are thinking about the opening of the Harris County domed stadium known as the Astrodome that brought in an entire era of bad baseball stadiums. Mary Poppins won an Oscar in 1965. The Beatles played Shea Stadium in 1965, their very first outdoor stadium show. The Gateway Arch in St. Louis was opened in 1965. And even though it's July, the Charlie Brown Christmas special was actually released that year. And so maybe you'll never forget 1965 because in December you're going to watch that again. You don't know why. I mean, it's cute, but you're going, I've seen this. You'll just remember this instead. Okay. I'm telling you all these things about 1965, and they're entirely irrelevant. They don't matter. 1965 is also the weight, 1,965 pounds, of about 20 lambs, irrelevant, or one of those smart cars that only has two seats in it. That's about 1,965 pounds, also irrelevant. Why am I, what, what is happening? 1965 is a number I want to get in your head, so I wanted to say it as many times as I could, because 1965 is a number that I will never forget. See, this year I released a book. I'm going to hold it up, and then I'm going to put it down, and then we're not going to talk about it much anymore. This is the book. Released a book this year. It's about 150 printed pages. It's not that many words, like maybe 30,000, all told. And I sent it off to the editor prior to publishing. And the editor, this wonderful human being who has agreed to read what I write and then edit it, sends me back a form with 1,965 suggested changes. Edits, comments, changes, sliced and diced. You've ever heard the phrase death by a thousand cuts? This was death by 1,965 cuts. And the crazy part, the first crazy part maybe, is that I paid good money for someone to do this to me. I paid good money for someone to say, here are 1,965 ways that you were not good enough. I paid someone to criticize me. The second uh, crazier part, and this I did not know would happen, was that I loved it. It was maybe my favorite part of the process this time. I've written a few different little things, and this was my favorite part of the process, getting back all of these edits. He tore everything apart. Word choices made, do you mean this word instead of that word? I don't think this makes sense. Try that. Look this up in the dictionary and see if you still want to use it. There were structure improvements and flow issues, misspellings and grammatical mistakes, formatting problems, awkward sentences, all of it. He found them all. And here's the thing. I want to think I'm actually a decent writer. Like I don't, I'm not going to win a Pulitzer. 
I don't want to, I don't want to imagine that yet. I, I just want to think I'm decent. Like I, maybe this is something I was meant to do a little bit. And so paying someone to show me how flawed I am seems to run counter to my desire to seek affirmation that maybe I'm okay at this. I mean, we live in the ultimate affirmation nation where the only type of feedback we want is positive feedback. We want people to affirm us and affirm what we do and what we believe or stay quiet. Affirm what I believe, affirm what I want, or be quiet. And while affirmation seeking might feel good in the moment, it runs counter to scriptural wisdom and ultimately is not what brings out the best in us which is where we're going to get to shopping cart theology in just a minute. Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 27, 17, famous verse, you've probably heard it before. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Think of it this way. You have a, a, a knife at home that you use for most of your cooking. Most people have a, a good knife, or at least the least bad knife, the better knife. When you're going to have to cut something, you pick that knife. You don't rub your prized chef's knife against a feather to sharpen it. You don't rub it against a nice, maybe a nice little square of velvet or your couch. You don't go take your knife and rub it against your winter sweater. If you want to sharpen your knife, you have to grind it against stone or brick, a sharpening mechanism. You have to grind it against something with an edge that's going to scrape off the imperfections. And as those imperfections get chipped off, the blade is honed towards its true purpose, which is to cut things. It's to be sharp. So flatly applied, if if you tune out in five seconds, here's what I want you to hear. We need each other to be better. We need each other to be better. And this is where this iron sharpening iron thing comes in. In order to fully unearth the holiness that has been built into you by the creator, we need editors and truth tellers in our lives. We need people to point out our 1965 mistakes if they're going to get the best version of us. Now, if we want a subpar version of ourselves, we can release ourselves into the world with all the mistakes and the errors and the flaws and go, just don't tell me if you don't like it. Or we can invite people to sharpen us and release our best self for the glory of God. And so consider the shopping cart. I was going to have a shopping cart up here with me, but, but since you're not in the room, I figured it wasn't all that big a deal. So we're just going to show you a shopping cart in just a minute. Are you a shopping cart returner? Like when you're done at the grocery store, do you take your shopping cart and put it back in the little corral there? And some of them, they have like the two different lines. One line is for the, the tiny carts, the mini carts, and one's for the big ones. Are you the person that's messing it up? Are you just jamming it in there? Are you one of those people? Look, no one can see you, so you raise your hand if you want in your living room right now. Are you one of those people that just leaves your cart on the curb? You just prop it up? (laughs) They're paying somebody to do it. I already gave them my money. I'm out. There's kind of two types of people, and then there's everyone in between. So there's kind of the the never returners. Like, look, I don't don't pay for that. They got someone to do it. In Texas, they call them cart wranglers because, I don't know, it sounds like a cowboy. And and he, I don't know what we call them here, but they're the people who get the cart. So you either have the never returners or the always returners, the people who are like faithful. I don't care, blizzard conditions, sleeting sideways, tornado in the, I'm putting the cart in the tornado. It's, at least I did my job. And then in the middle, there's the rest of us that probably, if we're honest, are sort of what we would call convenience returners or pressure returners. Convenience returners are like, it's a beautiful day. I'd love to be outside a little longer. Let me walk this cart back. 
or my child is in the car and I kind of want three more seconds without my child. And so let me just walk the cart back while they scream in the minivan. Where the, the, the convenience returners, there's also the pressure returners who might prop it up on the curb, except that there's somebody pulling up next to them who would see them. And out of guilt and shame, we take the cart back because we don't want them to think we're bad people who don't take our carts back to the corral. This is um, a really interesting thing that people have studied. And study after study shows that when there is somebody nearby, we return the cart. That most of us, when put under that pressure, we return the cart. It's called injunctive pressure. It's social law, not a legal thing, but it's a social law, a compact we have with the rest of humanity that will be like decent human beings. And it compels us to act a certain way. We don't want to be perceived badly. And so what's also true, this is a secondary study, found that um, when When you go into a parking lot, when people go into a parking lot with a lot of carts just all over the place, they're more likely to litter. Like it just, it sort of sets something off in our brains. And when all the carts are where they belong, we don't litter. When all the carts are just wherever, we just throw stuff everywhere. They put flyers on all these cars in different parking lots and they arrange the parking lots just so. And there was like radically more people that would take the flyer off and just leave it in the parking lot when there was a cart left out of the corral. As opposed to when the parking lot was neat, people would be like, well, I don't want to mess this up. There's some sort of social contract. And you take it into your car which is a good thing if you're a marketer, just go to the places where people return their carts and they'll actually look at your flyer. What does any of this have to do with anything? Here's why. The next time you see a shopping cart, I want you to think about community. I want you to think about the people in your life that if they were standing there would compel you to return the cart. And that's a metaphor, okay? That's just a metaphor. Who are the people in your life that have access to your life that compel you to do the right thing, that compel you to seek more holiness, that compel you to reach into more godliness, that compel you to chase Jesus a little bit more? Who are the people in your life that you go, you know what, I could make a really bad decision that's against the will of God, or I could maybe, I could make you lean into Jesus. Who are the people who they're standing next to you with with the cart, and, and they just help you make the right choice? Do you have people in your life that sharpen you, that help you put the cart back, in psychology, this is a fragment of assimilation theory that we kind of do what the crowd does. We tell our teenagers, you are who you run with. In, in Christian community and in, in, for followers of Jesus, we say iron sharpens iron. That if you are a dull blade in the drawer and you're trying to sharpen yourselves on feathers and velvet, it's not going to work. It doesn't happen. That you have to have other blades, other people on the same mission, on the same path that are going to bring out the best in you. We need community. I would say it this way, to be who we were designed to be, we need to be with those who are already living out their design. To be who we were designed to be, we must live out life with those who are already living out their design. There needs to be somebody with us modeling the flourishing that we're chasing. A sharper knife in the drawer, maybe, to buddy up with. We need community. And there's three types of community I want to briefly touch on today. And there are kind of three levels. One is the community of shared commitment, and this is like being the member of a church. You're you're one of hundreds on the same shared mission. There's a community of real intimacy, which is like a community group or a small group of some sort where you're actually more intimately known, and that's a number in the tens. You know, there's eight of you, there's 14 of you, there's 21 of you. And then there's the community of expected refinement, and this is actually accountability community. Nothing is off limits. They have full access to your life, and this, this is a handful or less. So let's start with the first one of those three, the community of shared commitment. 
this, this idea that I'm one of hundreds, but we share a mission. Book of Hebrews says, don't neglect to meet with each other. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This imploring of the people of God to join with the other people of God, to be together and encouraging each other, to be why we're, we're working so hard to get people in a room together again, because there's something about us being together. There's something about us encouraging each other on the mission that God's given us. It's a community of mass encouragement, of group accountability, of common aims that refine purposes, that, that help us see what life should look like. Now there's a hurdle here. And the hurdle is it's hard to go from casual to committed because you can, you can come into a building, you can sit on your couch and watch online and still only be casually committed. You're not actually part of a community of shared commitment because you haven't committed. It's like going from dating, I can get out of this anytime I want and go date someone else, to marriage. I signed a contract and there's some penalties and a whole lot of damage done if I got to walk away. And what that shift does is it sharpens our focus of our days. Because what we realize when we're in a community of shared commitment is that if everyone else is putting up their cart, I think I'm going to do it too. And sometimes it isn't the act of putting up the cart that's the right thing. It's doing the right thing that teaches us something about ourselves and more importantly, something about our Savior. What does it look like to be in a community where we're constantly being encouraged and challenged by those around us to lift our eyes a little bit higher, to look a little bit more above the fray of life in our modern world and to find the eyes of Jesus and the will of God and to chase that. If everyone around me is generous or sacrificial or seeking to serve someone else, maybe I will too. It's a community of shared commitment. Second one is a community of real intimacy. This one is tricky because there's a lot of false intimacy in the world. A lot of half confessions and 80% truths and holding back the real parts. Real intimacies, like in a dedicated community group, like in a, a subset of that, maybe the guys meet or the girls meet, or, or maybe there's, there's some smaller group within a group that you're a part of. Real intimacy happens in long-term friendship, in the walls slowly coming down and people being willing to be known. And the hurdle here is fear and insecurity. The hurdle is fear and insecurity because everyone is afraid of rejection. Admitting it or not, we are all afraid of being rejected and being found to be wanting. That someone doesn't think we have what it takes for whatever the purpose. And so we're afraid that if I told them everything, dot, dot, dot. If I told them everything, I don't know if I'd be welcome back. If I told him everything, I don't know if he'd be my friend. If I told her everything... I think she might judge me and she would look at me differently from then on. If I told them that I don't actually believe in putting up the cart, and a community of real intimacy loves anyway. Community of real intimacy says, you're the one who's been propping the cart up on the curb? Stop doing that, bro. Put it, it's, it's eight steps. Put it in the thing. You see the guy in negative temperatures who's got to go wrangle that thing and get it out from under the tree that you left? Just put it in the thing. But I love you. And that's a wholly different thing than you don't put the cart up, you're not welcome here. And a community of real intimacy begins to share honestly with each other of the real things of life. And we find love there anyway. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 
the scripture says there's no fear in love. We fear rejection, but in real love, we have no fear. Because perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. If I say something, they'll punish me. They'll reject me. They'll defriend me, whatever. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And when we read this passage, what we should see is that Jesus is coming into focus here. Jesus begins to become the object of the passage. Because Jesus knew everything about you. God is not surprised by your sin or your secret thoughts or your hidden habits. God is surprised by none of it. And he proactively loved you anyway, despite knowing what you were going to be up to and into. Jesus takes hold of the fear of rejection and nails it to the cross. Jesus was rejected on your behalf so that you might be accepted. And so when we fear intimacy, it's because we haven't fully given our lives to Jesus. We haven't fully trusted Jesus with who we are. Because Jesus says, Perfect love casts out the fear of that rejection because Christ was rejected so that you wouldn't have to be. Christ was rejected so that you would be eternally accepted by the creator of the universe. And this is where love begins to get radical and unbelievable because we find that somebody knows us inside and out and loves us anyway. And then when we start to realize that others might do the same, that someone else might know me inside and out, might hear my darkest secret, might know my terrible history— and love me anyway, that's when you know you're in a community of real intimacy. Third one is community of expected refinement. Community of expected refinement is we're starting to really drill down and, and zero in on that smallish group. Because the large group helps guide us and shape us a little bit. It's kind of the guardrails of life. The smaller group is more of a chisel and it sharpens us a bit here and there. And it kind of helps us focus this most intimate group, this group of expected refinement. They're the group where we become who God intended us to be. It's the group that most intentionally will transform us from raw to refined. It's the group that loves and cares you about you enough to risk relationship. To help you be the person that God intended you to be. To help you find the fullness of flourishing in life. Another familiar proverb in, in Proverbs 27 is verse 6. It says, the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. An enemy flatters and tells you lies to gain your approval or affirmation, but a friend is not afraid to risk relationship to give you truth. We've got to be careful with this when there's a lot of bad advice and sneaky judgment that is delivered under the guise of this scripture. A lot of people go, well, hey man, wounds of a friend, you know? The heart of this sounds more like this. You, not, you might not like me saying this to you, but you'll know that I loved you because I said it. If you can say something to somebody with that heart, you may not like me saying it, but you'll know that I loved you because I'm telling you. That's the wounds of a friend. That's what this scripture is getting at. That's what this passage, this, this tiny little nugget of wisdom wants you to hear. If you love somebody enough to risk that they're not going to like what they're about to hear, and they're going to receive it that way, you got yourself a gem. It's willing to be unpopular so that the one you love might flourish. I've been thinking about our elders a lot in these days. As we're planning to relaunch in-person services on the second, and we have a lot of unpopular choices to make. We just do. And you do the survey and you see the poll, and there is not a single choice we can make about relaunching that will please everybody. And most of our choices will actually alienate a good portion of both ends of the spectrum. If you tell one group you have to wear a mask, I'm violating freedoms. If you tell another group you don't have to wear a mask, you're 
risking my health. If you say masks are optional, then everybody goes, why don't you lead us? I feel for Governor DeWine. I feel for the leaders of our, of our government in so many ways because a, it's a lose-lose. Because no matter what is said, it's going to be unpopular with somebody. And so the heart of it has to be that I'm okay if you dislike what I'm about to tell you, but you have to know that it's rooted in my love for you. And if I can start there, then guess what? We might have some refinement happening as we journey through difficult things together. My editor for this book actually wrote his own book, and it's called Don't Fear the Reaper. Because so many writers are terrified of having their most intimate work torn apart by a stranger. It's, it's a strange feeling to send yourself out to somebody else and let them come back and tell you all that's wrong with you. I spent months on some of my shorter projects. Some of the stories that are in this book I've had for 15 years. And I've been kind of editing and honing and working and rewriting. And some of them are 15 years old. And in about three weeks, he was able to give me 1,965 reasons why they weren't quite good enough. And it was painful, but it was so freeing. I put an acknowledgement in the back that I don't fear the reaper. I actually love the reaper because the reaper made me better. The reaper brought out the fullness that, that I was supposed to have. It improved everything about what I was trying to get across. And I might not like him for saying all the things he said, but I know my flourishing was the heart of his criticism. I know that his love for the work and his willingness to take it on was the heart of the criticism, to make it better. And the result was my best work went out. But the process wasn't always easy. It was sometimes painful. The refining wasn't always what I'd hoped it would be. But this is what the mature Christian life looks like. It invites chiseling and sharpening. You know you have a mature Christian in your midst when somebody looks at you and says, I want you to criticize what I'm saying. I'm going to say something. I'm going to throw it out there. But I want you to come back and just tell me what's wrong with it. Tell me your concerns. Tell me your criticisms. Bring that. Because it can be painful, but it's really freeing. Because when we're in that space, there's no more faking it. There's no more only taking the cart back because someone's watching us. When we get to that place, when we're inviting chiseling, then we find that we begin to flourish like we were designed to flourish, that the scripture is not wrong in asking us to be in community with others, to be chiseling others, to sharpen each other together. And instead of being tossed around by every wind and wave, instead of being taken by every lie and every new idea, instead of that, we get to a new level of love together. This is the Ephesians passage that's talking about in, in Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to start reading in verse 15. And he's saying, don't be tossed around by every wind and wave. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we can grow together and become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up, builds itself up in love as each part does its work. How do we grow together to become the mature body? How do we become mature, fully functioning parts of the body of Christ? By speaking truth in love. By sharpening each other. Can I paraphrase that? Let me paraphrase the Apostle Paul. We need each other. We were designed for each other. And then speaking truth in love, not in judgment, in love. Speaking truth that says, you may not like me for saying this, but I know you'll know that I love you because I said it. Speaking truth in love and living in real, intimate, committed community. We become who God created us to be. So my question today for you is, do you have that community? Can you identify yourself in one of those three levels? I'm 
I'm outside of all those levels. I'm a casual observer. I've not committed to any sort of community. You're on the outside of the chiseling. You're on the outside of the flourishing. My challenge to you would be to figure out how do you get into a a shared commitment community? How do you get in? If that's Covenant Church, send me that email, kyle at bgcovenant.org. Hey, I want to know what it looks like to be committed to a, a body and be chiseled by others. I'll help you. If you're in a shared community, but you're not in any intimate relationship and you want to be in community with others and start growing those bonds and start growing those relationships where you can trust others. We got that too. That's called a community group around here. You go to bgcovenant.org slash community and there's a little form. You can sign up right now. Hit submit. We'll get back to you. Virtual, in person, we've got all options. Maybe you're in that sort of community, but you go, you know what, those people know most of me. I'm intimate, but no one has all access. That's another level for most people. If you don't have one of those, you got to do the first two steps to start building those relationships. You've got to get into intimacy before you can get into that deep accountability. Ultimately, the question for us all is, who's there to sharpen you? What community do you have around you to edit you? Who has the right to speak into your life? Who has the right to wound you in love? And we don't have to go into that sort of idea in fear because we have a Savior who was wounded in love first. Who proactively took on the wounds and the scars of nails. Who had the crown of thorns placed on his head because he was willing to be wounded to love you first. So that we might walk through this life and be unafraid of the little bits of pain that might come from the chiseling process of of being matured in him. So my challenge to you is to rest first in the Savior, to first find your identity in the Savior, first find yourself in the love of the Savior. That's the first community, community together with God through Jesus. And from there, we start digging deeper and deeper and deeper into what it means to follow him with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the ultimate community. That through the Trinity, we begin to see what it looks like to rely on each other, what it looks like to have the fullness of self as found in others. Father, in this church, in the local church, this one and the other great ones we have around here, we see what it looks like to be the local body. None of us complete in and of ourselves, but together complete and working towards completion every day as we chisel and grow, as we stretch and groan towards fullness and maturity and flourishing. So Father, I pray that anybody who is watching this that is lacking in community, that is lacking in that intimacy, Father, that you would provide the path, that you would show them the way, that you would give them the courage and the bravery to take the step, the step towards loving community, the step towards intimacy, and the step towards true accountability. Father, I pray against the fear that comes with that, that even hearts now are saying, but they wouldn't love me if, yeah, maybe he's thinking of something else, but if he knew what I was up to. Lord, speak to individual hearts and remind us that not only would we be loved if we knew everything about each other, but Father, you loved us so radically that knowing everything we would ever stumble through, you gave your life for us. So thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for your plan for our lives. We submit to you, we open our hands, and we say, lead us in this day. In Jesus' name, amen.